Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and I'm here today with our guest of the day is Dr. Hadi Saheb. Uh, Dr. Saheb is an assistant professor of ophthalmology and the current director of the Lacoma Fellowship Program at McGill University in Montreal. Hadi, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean, and thanks for uh, thanks for taking on this great initiative to to educate uh, colleagues and, uh, and friends about ophthalmology. It's fantastic. Ah, great. Well, it's going to be you educating them today. I'm just going to be guiding the some of the some of the questions. But uh, you know, just before we were recording, we were just talking about how you know we've had different uh, touch points, um, you know, throughout our, our career um, with some a lot of mutual yeah. uh, colleagues and. Uh, of course, none of those points that I ever have the, the opportunity to put you in the hot seat and just ask you questions for half an hour. So that's the, uh, what I'm, <laughs> what I'm going to do now. So it should be a lot Super. of fun. So, you know, glaucoma is certainly your wheelhouse and I thought we could do a bit of a deep dive into glaucoma and maybe we could just mm. start off with, uh, you know, what is glaucoma and how would you, uh, describe that? If you have a patient sitting in your clinic you know, how would you describe to that individual, what glaucoma is? Yeah, so I usually start by explaining in very broad terms that glaucoma is a pressure-related disease that tends to lead to damage to the uh, optic nerve, and that damage to the optic nerve uh, can cause uh, peripheral and even central vision loss sometimes. Um, and the other important aspect that I like to clarify to patients is that it is the vision loss is unfortunately irreversible. So. That's really prevention and early detection are, are so key because if we wait um, for vision loss to occur, for the patients to notice that their vision uh, has been affected, uh, it's often at a very advanced stage. And so that's really the, the goal of, of early detection and, uh, and prevention. And in my initial description, when I said pressure-related um, damage to the optic nerve, uh, I, I deliberately say pressure-related and not high pressure. And so although that's a, a nuance, I think it's an important one because, you know, some of our patients don't have high pressure, what we call low pressure glaucoma or normal pressure glaucoma. And so that concept of pressure related damage as opposed to a disease of high pressure is important because patients need to understand that it's not only about bringing the pressure down, but it's also about making sure that the health of their optic nerve remains uh, stable, whether or not their pressure is, you know, statistically normal. Um, and so that's where, you know, a lot of the, the rest of the education comes in about, you know, how do we follow glaucoma uh, beyond measuring pressure? You know, so we're definitely looking at other tests, which we'll get the chance to talk about, I'm sure, in the next little while, um, looking at things like visual fields and scans of the optic nerve and examining the optic nerve. So, so really, in, in summary, a pressure-related damage to the optic nerve that ends up gradually leading to irreversible um, peripheral and sometimes central vision loss. Okay. So there's, you know, I have a lot of follow-on questions there, right? So yeah. back in the days when I was first learning a little bit about glaucoma, you know, that was the called the, the dogma is like, okay, this is, you know, people get high pressure. So they go to the, the, you know, their eye care provider and they, they uh, measure the pressure in the eye and it was very mm. common, but it has that, you know, understanding evolved over time because you're alluding to, it's not always a, you know, a significantly elevated intraocular pressure associated with glaucoma. It's in some cases you're saying it is, you know, pressure related, but not necessarily high pressure. So I don't know if you can maybe elaborate on that a little bit. 
Yeah, of course. I, I think, you know, most, most people out in the community will, you know, meaning on the community, like non, uh, non eye care professionals kind of directly link glaucoma to pressure. That's kind of the first thing that comes to mind when they think of glaucoma. And, and unfortunately it is a little bit of a misconception and, and a little bit of a, a, a worrisome misconception because if pressure is normal, then perhaps that person will say, well, I don't have glaucoma, which is not the case. You know, thankfully, within the eye care community, I think we're all, um, you know, much, much more alert now than decades ago uh, that you can have glaucoma, even though you have normal pressure. Um, and so you have to go beyond just the pressure measurement to screen for glaucoma. And I think all our um, all our eye care professional colleagues are uh, aligned with that concept. So, you know, you have to look at the optic nerve and if the optic nerve looks really healthy and the pressure is normal, then likely that patient doesn't have glaucoma. But if the optic nerve looks suspicious for glaucoma, you know, there are specific signs for glaucoma, like a high cup to disc ratio or certain areas of thinning of the optic nerve uh, rim tissue or, you know, spots of, uh, spots of blood called a disc hemorrhage. Um, you know, there are various signs uh, or clues that a patient might have uh, early glaucoma. And so if you have any of those findings, even if your pressure is normal, um, you should be evaluated more formally for glaucoma. So, so absolutely that, you know, that concept or that direct link between pressure and glaucoma um, has evolved uh, to include um, findings of glaucoma uh, with or without high pressure. So, okay, you, you're, you're mentioning that um, it is irreversible. The damage caused by glaucoma is generally ir- is always irreversible. The vision loss. So, if someone doesn't have high pressure, but they do have mm-hmm. some of these other optic nerve signs, is there any you know symptoms at that stage that the person would be experiencing, or is that really just you know whether or not they're lucky enough to have you know to see an eye care provider uh, and catch it early on? Absolutely. Such a great point, Sean, and I'm, and I'm glad we're touching on this. And we should probably touch on it again uh, as many times as we can in the next, uh, next little while. The overwhelming majority of uh, glaucoma patients do not have symptoms. Uh, and even in patients that have high pressure, uh, they often don't have symptoms. And, so because, and the reason for that is because the pressure tends to gradually go up the eye uh, doesn't tend to feel that pressure when it gradually goes up over weeks or months or years. And so patients can have, you know, normal pressures is 10 to 20. Patients can have pressure of 30, 40, we even see 50 sometimes with zero symptoms. They don't feel anything at all. And so that's really the scary thing about um, glaucoma as you can be completely asymptomatic. So we hear patients complaining of a pressure-related sensation all the time. Um, but most of the time that pressure related sensation is not actually caused by pressure in the eye and those patients can have totally normal pressures. The most common cause of pressure related sensation in the eye is usually some variation of, of dry eye where the patients are feeling like an ache in their eye because their eyes are dry irritated, but not because there's actual pressure in the eye. Um, and then we have patients with pressure in the 40s or 50s that have zero symptoms and then have no awareness of the high pressure in your eye. So that's really important point because if you're waiting to feel pressure in the eye, of course, that's not, a, that's not at all an accurate um, or reliable way to screen for glaucoma. So what you said is correct. You know, the way to detect glaucoma is to go and get an eye exam. And so 
um, you know, depending on where you are, that could be with an optometrist or an ophthalmologist uh, for you to get a screening eye exam. And, uh, and really everybody should have a screening eye exam every one to two years, but specifically people that have risk factors. And so risk factors for glaucoma um, are age. So definitely anybody over the age of 50, um, anybody with a family history of glaucoma. So you should go even younger than 50 if you have a family history of glaucoma and certain ethnic groups, you know, people of African descent, Hispanic descent, Asian descent. Uh, these are all patients that are or, or ethnic groups that are more at risk for glaucoma um, and should also be screened uh, a little bit earlier in their lives. So, um, so yeah, the trick is really to get your eyes examined because you, you definitely should not be waiting for symptoms uh, because that's not, a, that's not a reliable way to screen for glaucoma. No, and so you mentioned, you know, there's some, you know, higher prevalence in different ethnic groups. Is there, you know, to your knowledge, is there information out there in terms of, uh, you know, genetic markers of the disease, like certain, you know, genetic underpinnings? Has that been elucidated at this point, or is it just, or very multifactorial? Uh, the simple answer is it's multifactorial. Uh, but to go back to your initial question, are there genes that have been associated with glaucoma? Absolutely. There have been some great uh, genetic researchers uh, throughout the international glaucoma community that have identified uh, genes that are uh, more linked to the diagnosis of, uh, of specific kinds of glaucomas. Um, but these, um, these findings have not um, have, have, have not been incorporated into our routine clinical practice um, because some people, there are glaucoma variants that have no genetic, uh, no, gen, no genes associated with them that have been identified yet. And so um, although it's, it's of interest uh, for research uh, purposes and for general learning, today and in, in today's uh, clinical environment, uh, they, they're not a reliable or, or complete way to, to screen for glaucoma. And so despite all these, um, these new findings about genetic links to glaucoma, really the, the only way to continue to screen for glaucoma uh, in a reliable way is to, is to get an eye exam. Um, because the reality is if you had a gene that put your risk of glaucoma, uh, but your eye exam was perfectly normal, healthy optic nerve, healthy visual fields, healthy scan of the optic nerve, normal pressure, I still wouldn't treat you, right? And if you um, had no genetic, uh, no genetic predisposition for glaucoma, but your eye exam showed abnormal pressure, abnormal optic nerve, well, that's a diagnosis of glaucoma and you need to be treated. So um, although the genetic uh, links are interesting and useful and, and will likely be part of the future of glaucoma, glaucoma diagnosis and treatment uh, in, in today's environment with what we know uh, about that, um, the diagnosis and the treatment of glaucoma is still based on that eye exam. So I've heard, uh, um, you know, in different conditions in the eye and outside the eye, the expression that, uh, you know, your genes load the gun, but the environment pulls the trigger. Mm -hmm. is, there, is there any environmental factors or modifiable risk factors? And if someone has a strong family history and they say, okay, hey, I want to do everything I can to prevent glaucoma from happening. <laughs> and, you know, I get my annual checkup with my, I, you know, my optometrist or ophthalmologist. Are there any other modifiable risk factors that people can uh, be aware of? I get this question almost every day from at least one of my patients. And it's a great question because, you know, is there something I could do to make things better or to reduce my risk? 
from a lifestyle or environmental uh, standpoint? The simple answer is no. Um, and uh, because there, has, there hasn't really been any you know, high quality proof of changes in your lifestyle that would really change the outcome of your glaucoma, that being said, there are a few nuances to that answer. Uh, one, there have been some recent studies showing that regular exercise might reduce uh, the rate of progression or slow down the natural history of the disease um, in some patients. And you know, from my standpoint, exercise is just so useful for so many other parts of your life and your health that I, you know, I am comfortable recommending uh, you know, regular exercise to anybody who asks me about that. Um, but although you know, other lifestyle habits like uh, smoking or poor eating um, are terrible for other parts of your health. There's been no you know, high quality proof that it, it changes um, your glaucoma outcome for the better or for the worse. So, um, you know, my general answer to that question um, is, you know, I, I encourage you to stay healthy for all the right reasons and for the rest of your general health. But for glaucoma, um, other than, um, you know, staying active, there's no real high quality proof that uh, lifestyle changes will make a big difference in your outcome. So what's going to make a big difference in your outcome is doing general, you know, doing your screening if you're not yet diagnosed with glaucoma. And if you are diagnosed with glaucoma, to follow recommendations about treatment, to follow recommendations about frequency of follow-up, to go ahead and get the test done that uh, you're, 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 that they're being recommended for you by your eye care professional. And so those are really the things that are going to change your, your outcome is to go ahead and follow the treatment and, and follow up recommendations rather than and specific lifestyle changes. No, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's the first time uh, I've ever heard somebody, no, I shouldn't say that. You know, you're not going to say go ahead and smoke, right? But uh, definitely not. But it, you just, it seems like as time goes on, um, smoking, poor diet, lack of sleep, lack of exercise, you know, more and more evidence comes out for just about any any human pathology that there's some sort of link. So it might just be, be a question of time. But uh, the, t- okay, different types of glaucoma. You know, I think, I've heard, like, I, I don't know enough about glaucoma. I have a, a very basic understanding and I'm learning as we're talking here, which is, which is great. But I've, I've heard that there are different versions of glaucoma. I mean, you can have, this actually got covered briefly in, in an ocular emergencies episode we had before where someone can have you know, a, a trauma to the eye and that could cause glaucoma. So I was wondering if you could talk maybe a little bit about the different types, whether that be, you know, what you more commonly see or what, you know, a trauma to the eye or, you know, a consequence of surgery or anything like that. Uh, yeah. that can cause glaucoma and what the differences might be. So um, the, the simplest way to categorize, or probably the most common way to categorize glaucoma is really into open angle glaucoma and angle closure glaucoma. So the angle is a part of the eye where the fluid in the eye called the aqueous drains from inside to outside of the eye. And that angle happened, it's called an angle because it's a junction of two structures in the eye, the cornea and the iris. And so if that angle is open, we call that open angle glaucoma. And if that angle is uh, closed or almost closed, we'll label those patients angle closure glaucoma. And that, that categorization is really important because if, if your angle is open, then really the priority is to lower the pressure and there are different ways to lower the pressure. And if the angle is closed, your initial priority is to mechanically or anatomically open up that angle. And there's different ways to do that, either with laser treatments or surgeries. And so that's really the, the difference in the initial treatment. Eventually, whether you have an open angle or a closed angle glaucoma, some of the treatments overlap, like lowering the pressure with drops, for example, or certain kinds of 
later stage surgeries, but really what's different is the initial treatment. So that separation, when you're initially getting a diagnosis of glaucoma, often the eye care professional is really focusing on differentiating between open angle glaucoma and angle closure glaucoma. In North America, open angle glaucoma is uh, the more common kind of glaucoma. Um, and in, uh, in other areas of the world, specifically um, Asia and in some of our indigenous populations, angle closure is, uh, is more common. And then the final comment about that is uh, that within angle closure, you can have chronic angle closure glaucoma, which is more common, and you can also have acute angle closure. So some people call that a glaucoma crisis or a glaucoma attack. And actually people hear about that quite a bit and people are quite scared of that in the community, even though it is relatively, relatively rare. So it's important to be aware of it. If you suddenly have red eye or pain, then you definitely want to, um, you definitely want to be uh, seen rather soon. Um, but the actual, you know, frequency or prevalence of angle closure glaucoma, acute angle closure is actually pretty low. So the more common, uh, the more common conditions are really a chronic open angle glaucoma or chronic angle closure glaucoma. There are a number of other kinds, you know, trauma can cause it, a complex surgery can cause it. There are other glaucomas called pigmentary glaucoma or inflammatory glaucoma, pseudoxploitic glaucoma. Um, but these are all, uh, you know, more rare than your run-of-the-mill uh, open angle or angle closure glaucoma. No, it makes sense. Now, you are just saying that there are certain populations that are more at risk for, you know, chronic angle closure glaucoma versus open angle. Is there, you know, do you think it just has you know i guess what why do you think that is like is it genetic do you think it's lifestyle do you think it's both or is it just really not well um determined yeah there's for sure a genetic predisposition predisposition to having smaller eyes so in very simple terms um you know open angle glaucoma tend to have normal or longer eyes and angle closure glaucoma uh, are more likely to have smaller eyes. That sort of makes sense if you think about what angle closure means, which is that the angle is, is more narrow or more closed. So if an eye is smaller or shorter, um, then everything in the eye is going to be a little more crowded and you're going to be more likely to have angle closure glaucoma. So in these populations, so the indigenous and Asian populations, we have found that the front of the eye um, is, uh, is more crowded, which is the reason for the risk of angle closure glaucoma. So, um, so yes, absolutely, there's a genetic predisposition for that. Is there more, you know, hyperopia in those populations too? Or Exactly. Uh, yeah. Right okay. on, Sean. Exactly. So, uh, you know, as, as you're alluding to, you know, myopia tend to have longer eyes and then hyperopia tend to have shorter eyes. Um, and, uh, and so that link between shorter eyes and hyperopia and angle closure, that's all, it's all part of the same thought process of an eye being smaller or more crowded. No, that makes sense. So, okay. I'd just like to talk a little bit about the evolution of, of treating glaucoma and maybe you can you, know, you can break it down into uh, subtypes or you could talk more at later stages if it's a uh, common treatment approach. I think traditionally, I've always thought of treating glaucoma with uh, drops that you know, lower the pressure, but I don't know, you know, I guess how that treatment has evolved over time or if it has, um, and then maybe anything that you know that's coming down the pipeline or what people are working on. Yeah, there's been a lot uh, of change in glaucoma diagnostics, glaucoma treatments, um, and uh, it's part of what makes glaucoma care so exciting is because we continue to have, you know, newer, newer treatments to offer our patients. And so, you know, I've been in practice for almost 10 years now, and you know, the 
way I treat glaucoma today is significantly different than it was when I started practice and even more different than when I was training. And so, you know, if I were to try to simplify what the, the, the broad strokes are of the evolution of glaucoma care, um, glaucoma care is becoming a little bit more, not a little bit, a lot more interventional. So what does that mean? You know, in the past, glaucoma care was very much focused on giving drops so, um, you know, if we prescribe a drop for a patient that they have to take once or twice or three times a day, and that kind of becomes their commitment for the rest of their life. And these drops were great. We still use it quite routinely in, um, in, in what we do. Um, however, some of the challenges with taking drops, uh, one is patients remembering to take drops. So terms like compliance and adherence, are they taking their drops every day? Are they refilling their prescription? And, and we know studies have shown over and over again that there are significant challenges in patients' ability to take drops um, in, a, in, a, in a reliable way. Um, and then there's also side effects related to drops. Um, you know, the drops are thankfully tolerable in the majority of cases. However, um, there's a, a significant proportion of patients that have side effects like redness or irritation or burning or foreign body sensation um, and some cosmetic side effects as well. So, all this to say between compliance issues and side effects and also cost, there's a really an interest in finding other ways to lower the pressure uh, in our glaucoma patients. So that's where the various interventions come in. So I would say, you know, the, the, one of the simpler interventions that uh, has gained uh, popularity is something called SLT laser. So selective laser trabeculoplasty. So this has been around for a while. Um, uh, well over a decade, but it's really become you know, repopularized just in the last couple of years. There's been a recent, really well-designed um, study called the LIGHT trial uh, that has really um, shown how useful, uh, how useful SLT is beyond the initial uh, studies that, uh, that came out uh, over the last 10 years. So this has been really useful in, in convincing uh, myself and many of our glaucoma colleagues that we should be offering and mentioning laser treatments right off the bat. You know, in the past, it was you know often like a, an adjunct or an addition to drops. Um, but I think with that recent study, many of us have moved to making sure we offer patients right off the bat the option of laser treatment versus drops. For some patients, they're just hesitant to do any kind of procedure, and, and I think that's their right. We want patients to be comfortable. Um, but for those patients who are comfortable with the idea of a procedure, I think starting with laser is, is really interesting because it removes the burden of taking drops every day and, and the associated issues with taking drops. It removes that burden from them um, and, uh, and offers them the option of having a safely lower pressure without needing to take drops. So that's kind of the most common or the simplest intervention that's um, you know continued to evolve in its role in glaucoma treatment. And then there's also a number of procedures that we have now that weren't available 10 years or 10 years ago or so um, in the space of microinvasive glaucoma surgery, which I think we'll talk about a little bit later, um, that allow us to, to do surgeries on patients a little bit earlier in the disease spectrum. Because you know, 10 or 15 years ago, the only surgeries available were really invasive surgeries, surgeries called trabeculectomy or tube shunt surgery that are great surgeries. You know, we we love performing the surgeries on patients who, who need them. Um, but the risk profile is significant. So we don't want to have to do that on, on uh, all of our glaucoma patients. And so really they were reserved for patients that had advanced disease or disease that was really getting worse, um, uh, where the risk of that kind of surgery was justified. 
But I think now with less invasive surgery options, we can offer surgery a little bit easier in the disease spectrum. So once again, more interventions that can be offered to patients. You know, you're talking about this and we'll dive into microinvasive surgery just in, in a moment. But, you know, as you're talking about, you know, alternatives to drops, it, it's amazing how many people, A, are afraid to take drops, <laughs> to put drops in their eyes. I know people who would, uh, just over time, who would much rather have, you know, a surgery done uh, or, you know, an interocular injection of something versus putting drops in their eyes every day. Just It's, a, it's almost like a, well, an irrational fear, I guess, right, of, uh, of putting drops in the eyes. And B, uh, some people can't do it very well. Um, and I think in both those cases, uh, compliance goes way down. So, you know, you think that, hey, we have this, uh, you know, treatment regimen that's going to help this person and significantly. And then, you know, you see them, whatever it is, three months later, six months later, and you realize, you know, things have gotten worse, not better. And then you find out that they that they just haven't stuck to their, their regimen of drops for, for uh, you know, maybe one of the two above, uh, above two reasons. But uh, I've just heard these stories. Yeah. I'm not an ophthalmologist, but I hear these st- anecdotes from, from friends of mine in the space, right? Yeah, I, I think that point's really important because there are some patients that, uh, that at least in my experience, I've, I haven't really noticed fear so much, but there's really a discomfort, you know, an inability to, to take the drops. They can, they can try all they want. And it's just, um, you know, they're unable to get it uh, to go in their eyes. I'd say most patients that have those issues will often be patients with some kind of arthritis issues or, or something wrong with their, um, with their fingers or they're unable to press on the bottle properly, or um, also patients with tremors or uh, some people just have a inability to, to not reflexively squeeze their eye when anything comes comes close to their eye. But I would say that outside of that, you know, most patients who do want to take drops are, are eventually able to learn how to do it and, and, and figure it out. But I think one of the benefits of mentioning right off the bat, the idea of, of an intervention as an alternative to drops is at least patients know that that door is open, you know, and so they're able to, you know, in future visits, um, come back and say, you know, I know that you offered me a couple of options when we first started and I chose drops but I, I'm finding it really hard to take the drops or I'm finding that I'm forgetting or I don't like the side effects or, or you know, having to go to the pharmacy every month and renewing them is a little bit of an issue or you know, whatever other reason. And when they know that that door is open, they're able, I think it makes them more comfortable engaging in that conversation to look at different options. Whereas if all you tell them is, okay, you got glaucoma, take drops and, and see you in a couple of months, um, you know, maybe they'll be a little bit more shy to, to mention that they're not able to take the drops as, as much as, uh, as, as, as regularly as they're supposed to, um, and be a little bit more shy when they don't know there's another option. Um, they might be more shy to express their concerns about that treatment. So I think the idea of options is, is really empowering to patients because when they choose their, their, the treatment themselves, I think they're, they're more likely to be, um, engaged and committed to that treatment. So I, I have found a real benefit in, in, in offering two options in initial glaucoma treatment um, uh, from a, you know, uh, an alliance with the patient and that bond between the physician and the, and the patient and also their engagement in their treatment because really they're the ones choosing. You know, I'm sincerely giving them two options and, and when they ask me which one I prefer, I say, when I give you two options because I truly think both options are, are, are reasonable. And so, you know, sometimes they push me to, to really give them my preference and I'll share it in that case. But I think both options are, are reasonably similar enough that I, I truly do give those options to the patients and let them choose based on their personal preference. Right, that makes a lot of sense. Um, just a, a question. This is a very basic question that I probably should know the answer to, but is glaucoma typically bilateral? So most glaucomas are bilateral. 
So there's, um, there can certainly be an asymmetry in the glaucoma uh, and every now and then there is a unilateral glaucoma, but I'd say most uh, routine glaucomas are, um, are bilateral. Okay. No, it makes, it just makes sense. I'm just trying to think about mm-hmm. the, um, you know, how it might develop and whatnot. I, obviously if it's a, you know, a trauma that it might be unilateral. Um, but I, I, I don't know if there's any theories on the, the asymmetry. Like, I mean, that's in other diseases I have retinitis pigmentosa, as you know, and there is asymmetric progression of that disease in, in many patients where one eye will, will, you know, get worse faster than the other in, in, in glaucoma, I guess it can happen as well. Is there any, to your knowledge, any theories on why that is, or is just, just kind of the way it is? Yeah, I think a number of the studies that have looked at unilateral asymmetric glaucoma, their, their conclusion is, has been after looking at a number of things and, and really looking for more complex uh, explanations for the asymmetry, um, often the answer has been that there's usually some kind of a secondary glaucoma uh, in that eye. So, um, you know, a common secondary glaucoma is a condition called pseudo exfoliation glaucoma. And so often in pseudo exfoliation glaucoma, there is one eye that is worse than the other. And it's just uh, the nature of that specific disease where there tends to be that abnormal deposit that accumulates a little bit more in one eye than the other. And so that's a common cause for um, very asymmetric glaucoma, or even in some cases, unilateral glaucoma. And then a number of the other secondary glaucomas, like you mentioned, trauma or inflammation in the eye, um, or another secondary glaucoma called pigmentary glaucoma. So those are conditions that are more likely to be um, unilateral or very asymmetric. And so, but, you know, routine primary open eye glaucoma, uh, although it can be asymmetric, it's less predisposed to, um, to having these significant asymmetries or this significant, uh, or, or being unilateral. So whenever you have like a unilateral condition as a clinician, my first, uh, my first reaction is to look for a secondary cause, to look for a reason for that patient to have uh, unilateral glaucoma, um, because it is quite unusual in people that just have run-of-the-mill glaucoma, which we call primary open eye glaucoma. And what primary means is there's, there's no identifiable cause. And, uh, and in those cases of primary open eye glaucoma, it's, it would be quite surprising to, to have it be unilateral. No, that makes, that makes sense. Um, I thought we could circle back to microinvasive surgery. So I know that you have research focused uh, around microinvasive surgery. So I thought maybe you could just talk a little bit about, about that research and just about the space in general. Why is microinvasive surgery um, you know, of interest to you and to, and to the field in general? Yeah, so just a little bit of a, a, to to press rewind for a little bit, uh, because I think the perspective here is so is so important. Um, anybody that researches, you know, MIGS, so microinvasive glaucoma surgery today, will just see a plethora of literature and uh, data and experience um, of MIGS, and it, you know, if you're researching today, it just looks like MIGS is part of what we do and, and is uh, and is a really part of, a really important part of glaucoma treatment options. Um, but in 2012, um, I was uh, one of the authors on the paper that defined MIGS. And at that time, I remember so clearly that all it was is really an idea with a few devices in, in, in their early phases of usage and, uh, and research. Um, and remain quite controversial, like any, uh, like any uh, innovation uh, in the beginning, it's often controversial. And so that's 2012, that's less than 10 years ago. Uh, 
And here we are today with a number of new options, a ton of, uh, a ton of investment in research studies um, on, on these devices, um, and really glaucoma leaders throughout the world uh, using this and trying to better understand these devices to, uh, to really figure out you know, which devices work in which patients. So I think we've answered the question, do these devices work? Yes, they do. Um, and, uh, and I think we've answered the question, are they safe? Yes, they are. And what remains to be answered is, well, how do they compare to one another? Because we have a number of mixed devices. And how do we really personalize uh, care um, in choosing which of these devices we put in, in each of our patients? Um, so to, to take a step back again and define uh, MEG, so microvasic glaucoma surgery, the, the premise is really um, that the priority is safety and visual recovery. Um, so uh, amongst MEG's procedures, uh, the priority is to submit the patients to the least amount, uh, least amount of risk. And so I was referring earlier to our traditional glaucoma surgeries, which are called trabeculectomy and tube chunk surgeries that are great surgeries that work in our most advanced of glaucoma patients because those patients need what we call our big guns. You know, you need a, an invasive surgery, um, kind of the equivalent of a cardiac surgery, you know, open heart, uh, open heart bypass. Um, you know, those hearts are so sick, that's the only option you need to just bypass um, the, uh, the vessels in the heart. So similarly in glaucoma, you need to bypass the drainage system and do a trabeculectomy or tube shunt surgery uh, in our sickest of patients. But the, the point of microvasive glaucoma surgery is in some patients, you don't need to do all of that. And perhaps um, you can offer them something safer uh, that's not as big of a gun um, uh, because that patient doesn't need it. So kind of the equivalent in, in cardiac care would be the stenting that interventional cardiologists do um, in patients that don't necessarily need an open, an open heart surgery. So, um, so often these sort of stenting procedures or cutting procedures or tissue removal procedures that are less invasive um, and uh, can offer a pressure reduction uh, without the amount of risk that the more invasive surgeries uh, do. So um, from a glaucoma practitioner standpoint, uh, what makes this so great is that when a patient comes to see me needing glaucoma surgery, um, I have you know, anywhere between five and 10 options for each of those patients. And depending on their level of disease, um, how many drops they're on, how high their pressure is, um, what their lifestyle is like, how old they are, I'm able to look at those options and really customize care uh, for that specific patient. And, and there's nothing more rewarding uh, to a practitioner to feel like we're, we're moving towards personalized care um, for, uh, for glaucoma patients. So I think that's a, no, certainly a good overview on that. And um, on the rewarding side of things, I'm going to put you on the spot here for just maybe one last question before we wrap up. I think we've done a a pretty good job, or you have done a good job of giving a, an overview of, of glaucoma, the, you know, the who, what, where, when, high, why, how, so to speak. But I'm just curious, you know, why glaucoma? Why did you, uh, of all the different specialties in ophthalmology, or even why ophthalmology for that matter, why, like, what led you down that path and doing what you're doing right now? Yeah, I, I um, def that's not putting me on the spot. This is something I think about all the time. So I'm, I'm definitely happy to share I am so happy I chose glaucoma just to start. You know, I, I, I find what I do so rewarding uh, on, on many levels. And so I'll start with the patient interaction. So um, glaucoma is a chronic condition. So, um, you know, some of my patients come in for glaucoma surgery and then go back to their, uh, to their, uh, their regular ophthalmologist or optometrist um, because they don't necessarily need my, my care. So those patients I don't necessarily have a chronic relationship with, although 
you know, I'll see them before surgery, during surgery, and after surgery for usually a couple months or so. Um, so there is a little bit of relationship there. But for my patients that um, need to stay under my care long term, you know, I, I'll see those patients for years, and and that relationship and that trust that builds over time is is uh, is quite rewarding. Um, so that's on a patient interaction standpoint. On a surgical standpoint, um, it's it's rewarding because there are a number of surgical options. Um, and so I'm always you know, performing different uh, procedures, whether it's lasers or surgeries in the operating room. Um, and, uh, and also the field is quite dynamic in that we are continuing to have more options for patients. So as a surgeon, you're continuing to evolve. You know, what I do with surgeries today are very different than the surgeries I did during training. Um, and likely the surgeries I'm gonna do in 10 years from now are, are going to be different as well. So that um, the number of options I can offer patients and my evolution as a surgeon uh, is, uh, is really rewarding. And then um, you are truly you know, saving vision. So from an impact standpoint, standpoint um, there are a lot of my patients that you just know that they would have otherwise gone blind and, uh, and we're not able to save everybody, but we're able to save the majority of patients' uh, vision. And to, to know that you're doing that on a, on a daily basis is uh, it's pretty hard to beat. Um, and then other aspects are, you know, I work in an academic center, we have medical students, residents and fellows, um, and to see them evolve in their training and their ability to care for patients and to know that, um, you know, we're, we're part of the process of training the next generation of ophthalmologists and, uh, and glaucoma specialists is, is great. And it's probably one of my, you know, one of my, my favorite parts of what I do is the, is the teaching aspect as well. So, um, and then there's the research and the health leadership and the political aspects of everything I do that, um, that are rewarding as well. But uh, yeah, so that's a, a long-winded answer to, uh, to, to why I chose glaucoma. And, and I would absolutely make the same decision again if I were in training today. No, that's, that's great. And I think that uh, you know, you're the director of the fellowship program. And I think that just participating in the podcast here today is certainly a testament to uh, at least one of those pillars in terms of teaching and, and education. So um, I want to take the opportunity to, to thank you for, for joining us today. I think that the, I know I've definitely, definitely learned some things. I feel like some of them I should have known from past experience, but I, I didn't. Uh, and certainly some, uh, some new things as well. So I appreciate you sharing that information with me and, and with the audience. And uh, it's just a pleasure to have you on the show. Awesome. Well, thank you, Sean, for, uh, for thinking of me for glaucoma and for all the work that you're doing in the, um, in the eye care education space. So keep up the great work. And, uh, and I hope that was enjoyable to you and, uh, and all your listeners. Excellent. Thank you. Take care.